In Africa, things are happening now that cannot be undone. I'm Steve Stein, and this is Inside Asia. That was the voice of Eric Olander, who for years has carved out a unique niche covering China's presence in Africa. He's the founder, host, and mastermind behind the China Africa Project. His website, www.chinaafricaproject.com, is chock-a-block with news, insights, and postings on the subject. Eric is also a fellow podcaster. Today, the China in Africa podcast has more than 700,000 followers, where week in, week out, he and his host, South African-based Kobus von Stun, introduce experts with something to say about the trends, developments, investments, and controversies associated with China in Africa. It should come as no surprise, therefore, that Eric has established himself as one of the most rigorously informed and brilliantly articulate voices on the subject. I sat down with him on my last trip to Shanghai, and from the executive lounge atop the JW Marriott, we talk shop. We're going to pick up my conversation with Eric just as he's telling me how he got his first big break as a journalist. It's a story filled with twists and turns. Eric was a college student working at a radio station in Hong Kong when the BBC first heard his voice. I'll let him tell you what happened next. The BBC heard me in Hong Kong, and I was anchoring six nights a week, overnights, from seven at night to five in the morning. They heard me, and then through some some intermediary friends, they approached me and they said, uh, listen, our journalists in Beijing are locked down after Tiananmen Square. We can't go anywhere. This was 1992, and uh, so still the hangover from Tiananmen was, was there. But we've heard that Deng Xiaoping is doing some amazing things in the countryside. And this was right after the Southern tour. So that's when Deng went down to Shenzhen. And there's this famous picture of him, almost like Christ-like picture of him with his hand over Shenzhen and almost bestowing, saying, here, we're going to try something new. (laughs) And it's all with intent, by the way. That was designed just to... That that was working. And you see that, I mean, it is the propaganda image of Deng kind of looking over. and And so they said... Things are happening in the countryside right now, and we need to get people out to start reporting this. You're technically a student, aren't you? I said, yeah. And they said, so we have a deal for you. We'll pay you $400 a story. Uh, We want you to travel around the countryside, write your stories, voice them over the phone, or come to London and then record them. Uh, But here's the caveat. If you get caught, We'll have nothing to do with yeah. you. Plausible deniability. That's it. Yeah. If you get out, we'll be able, we'll put your stories on the air. <laughs> well, we'll still give you the $400. Well, and I said, <laughs> let, let me think about it. Okay, done. Okay. So I spent nine months in 1992 mm. riding the rails of rural China. I went to 15 provinces and I did this uh, series called Postcards from China for the, the, the Chinese BBC World Service. And, and, and they never caught on that he's not a student, he's actually sending those, those things back, or they didn't care? They, no, they didn't. At that time, their, their surveillance was nowhere near as sophisticated as was today. I ran into one problem in Hunan province, where at five in the morning, the, the Gongan, the, 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 the Public Security Bureau, came to my door. And uh, they said, uh, basically, you're on the 530 train to the next province. Uh, We don't know who you are, what you're doing, but we just don't want you here. Yeah, Hunan's that way. They actually send a lot of people out. No, they just just said, we don't don't care who you are, but you seem like trouble to us, so go. So that was the only, that was the, the most that I got into it. But what was fascinating for me looking back now in 1992 going into the countryside. And at that time, Shenzhen was the countryside. It's hard to believe today, yeah. a city of 10 million people. Yeah, it was a big mud pit, right? Was, Lots of construction. It was, a, it was a, a, yeah, it was a mud pit and still hints of a fishing village. 
Um, one of my stories from Shenzhen was on the class divide. And that's a theme that is still very prominent today in China. Mm. We talked, uh, you know, I talked a lot about, uh, you know, the spread of capitalism and this idea of the loosening up of the farm economy and talking about how villagers were going out and selling in a market. And that was revolutionary yeah. at the time. Uh, the tensions that were starting to emerge in this culture of, you know, one guy who works really hard at a factory makes no money and the next guy has got a BMW. Yeah. How did that yeah. happen? Yeah. And those are stories that came out in 1992. And you look back from today, that's the same theme. And, and Eric, isn't it ironic? We're sitting here at the JW Marriott in Tomorrow Square looking out over, you know, what is the Bund um, and, and, what, and, and across to Pudong. And Pudong is this development area that in your day back then was nothing but a big open area, uh, you know, some early stages of construction and a dream this idea um, and, and you saw that and when, when there was nothing at all and everyone was laughing at these Communist Party leaders who were saying we're going to be bigger than Paris watch what, what will we do I, I, ca I came in from Zhejiang which is an interior city on a boat on a three day boat into Shanghai and at that time the Peace Hotel was the big the big building yeah, you the, know, old, right? the old jazz guys that's it, that's right? it. And, uh, and that was like on the Bund and that was one of the bigger buildings and it's you know today I mean it's cute and quaint yeah, can you even find it among yeah. all the other buildings right? and uh, so I, I later after my stint with the BBC I became an intern with the US State Department and I did six months here and uh, as part of my, the State Department they invited a group of us to go to Pudong just to show us and it was these kind of schlumpy, you know, poorly dressed, you know, the, the kind of dance shoes type of thing that, you know, at that time was, a, a, you know, a kind of a typical Communist Party cadre kind of fashion statement. And they, they kind of looked out and we were sitting in the middle of a farm field right across from the Bund. And they said, we're going to build the next Wall Street here. Mm. And I, you know, we just laughed. I mean, we were, we just, you know, we, we, how could we take these people seriously? Yeah. I mean, first of all, this was a farm. Secondly, these guys, I mean, really, right. you know, I mean, you know, if, if a guy who looked like Gordon Gecko came up to me and said, listen, I've got a plan, that's one thing. Yeah. But these guys were, were local Communist Party officials. Right. Did they say greed is good? Uh, they didn't. <laughs> but I think that was a subtle message, by the way, after what we've learned in the past 25 years. But it taught me a very important lesson It's a lesson that I that I use in, 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 in the filter that I have for studying China today. I've underestimated China uh, uh, quite a few times, and every time I've been disproved. And I go back to that time in the fields of Pudong, right right now where Century Boulevard is and Century Park is. I mean, we're talking the heart of Pudong, nothing there. And I ridiculed them in my mind. And over the past 25 years, watching what has happened here and what has happened to China, um, you become humbled. And that's the difference between the people who've been here a while and the people who haven't. Yeah. And this kind of brings us to, you know, the next phase. Um, you know, we've watched this. We've seen this happen over 20, 25 years. And now all of the miracle that has become China is now an export story. And this is where Africa comes, comes back in. And, and I'd like you to talk to us a little bit about, about, you know, how you got back in touch with Africa and then how you're now stringing the Africa and China story together. Yeah. So in 2005, my brother uh, was producing soap operas in the Congo, which is- As, as people do. As people do. But but he, uh, and, and that's a whole separate kind of story, which you and I will have some drinks over and I'll tell you about later. Uh, but he's producing soap operas funded by the U.S. State Department and the uh, the PEPFAR, which is the Presidential Emergency Fund for AIDS Relief. So, so were these melodramas with health themes or things of that sort? They were. And the idea was now, originally when governments produce media for the most part, they're terrible at it. Mm. My brother kind of
kind of came in and said, listen, let's tell a good story rather than kind of say, you know, you know, practice safe sex, which is just a boring message that nobody pays attention right. and to. And nobody does it anyway. And so what he did was he kind of, you know, made shows that were more like the Cosby show in the sense of the Cosby show always had a morality tale. Maybe not the best example. Not the best example <laughs> now, but at least the stories. Yeah. Um, and within each Cosby show was a, was a very good morality tale that people didn't know they were consuming because the storyline was good. So I just thought, you know, my brother's over there. I'm going to go and just kind of see him. And I went over in 2005 to Kinshasa. And, and this is after you'd been in Asia for a long time, and you were you had just finished up in Vietnam, and you said, "What what the heck?" Back no, this to- is before. This is prior to Vietnam. Oh, right. This is prior to Vietnam. This was, you know, I was at CNN. I was at Los Angeles. I'd right. been at CNBC, uh, and I started going over to see him. And when I got to Kinshasa for the first time, there was a Chinese restaurant in town. You know, it proves the old idiom that there's a Chinese restaurant everywhere in the world. So I go in front. I get my requisite picture in front of the Chinese restaurant, two fingers up and kind of do that. Uh, Thought nothing of it. Thought nothing of it. Come back in 2006 to see my brother and there's two Chinese restaurants. Okay, that's kind of interesting, but still didn't think anything of it. By 2007, 2008, uh uh-oh, something's happening. There are Chinese people on the streets. Um, You're seeing just a buzz and you're like, wow, that's different than just two years ago. By 2010, when I moved there, and this is 100% true. The flight from Paris to Kinshasa, which is a daily flight, almost the entire business class was Chinese. And I got on the plane and I remember going, wait, uh, am I on the right plane? Yeah, going to the right destination. I mean, I thought, I literally thought I got on the wrong plane going to Asia. And when I moved to to Kinshasa in 2010, uh, obviously bringing with me all of this China experience, um, I was curious to kind of see what was happening. And yet I was reading in the international press, the FT, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, all the, the usual suspects, this narrative about the Chinese, they're colonizing Africa, they're conquering Africa, they're victimizing Africa. It was this decidedly negative, which is very typical of the Western press, even to this day about China. Why, so why were they doing this? Because it just felt like an, it felt like an incursion that like, that's our territory. We've been kind of the colonizers. You can't just expect to come in and take over what we did is that what was the feeling i think i think that's i think if you ask if you put that to any kind of self-respecting journalist they'll say absolutely not but within every newsroom no matter where you are in the world and i speak with 25 years now of news experience there are these embedded narratives and and those embedded narratives and on the embedded narrative for the story in africa is the editors in New York, London, Paris want to see war, AIDS, child soldiers, you know, famine, hunger. You know, I can't move a story, you know, onto the front page if it's not that, if it somehow challenges those narratives. In, in Europe, the narratives are the kind of sphere of control. And, I, you know, I can talk about my experience at, at, at France 24 when I was the editor-in-chief, when that was the time you and I met. Mm-hmm where if you try to put a a narrative that challenges the deep, deep established narratives in these newsrooms about the role of the French and the role of the British, uh, it's almost impossible to get Mm. through. And, And so China undermines all of these narratives in Africa. So, so you had a gut feeling about this all the way back to 2010. You, you, you felt like the narrative then was wrong as it is wrong today. And here's why. Huh. I, had, I, I had a staff of about 50 young people working on our TV show. Because I, I went to go work from, with my brother on the show. And we have about 50 young Congolese. And I would ask them, I said, what do you think of the Chinese? Hmm. And what I was fascinated by was how they gave me such textured, nuanced answers. They didn't give me this kind of polemic, you know, white or black, this is good or bad, or this is, they gave me this, 
I like what they're doing here, but I'm nervous about what they're doing there. And specifically, what are some of those pros and cons? The pros were, I love the fact that the Chinese come in and get things done. If you want to work with the Americans or the Europeans, the Americans have to file an environmental impact report. You have to do 50,000 pages of paperwork before you can get your grant. You have, you know, this, the bureaucracy and the Europeans are even worse than the Americans. Mm. And so they'll spend five years doing, you know, talking about a project. Mm. The Chinese will come in in that great pragmatism that the Chinese have and say, let's get it done. Mm. Now, sometimes they do that to their detriment where they go too fast, the quality suffers and whatnot. But people were seeing results. They were seeing new roads go up. They were seeing hospitals going up. You know, when, when I was in Kinshasa, uh, for the first time, the Chinese Huawei had rolled out a cell network. And I was connecting to the internet on a Huawei 3G dongle onto my computer that was linking up to a Huawei kind of server system that was linking up probably to Huawei kind of satellites that were then bringing the internet to people and mobile phones. That's a tangible change. Yeah. While the Americans in the West are talking about civil and political rights, the freedom of association, freedom of religion, and people kept thinking, I can't eat that. I can't touch that. And the Chinese are, are far more pragmatic in that sense. And that was really important for them. Eric, wasn't it just another retelling of exactly what Deng Xiaoping was doing in 79 when he was pointing out and blessing Shenzhen? He was saying, forget political rights. Let's focus on economic freedoms. Give people an opportunity to make a living. Uh, demonstrate that you actually you don't need all these political freedoms that the West has and let the development speak for itself. That is, I mean, you read perfectly from the Chinese propaganda book. Yeah. That's as if you've memorized it yeah. well. Oh, yeah, the little red book. <laughs> the little red book. Yeah. So, and, and this goes to the core of the Chinese worldview. Right. Which but, is, but is that propaganda or is that, is, is that what they're doing? Is that, it, it, they're, are they really just rolling out with economic development capabilities in order to demonstrate to the world that there is a better way to do it? I won't say it's a, they, they will probably not say it's a better way. Right. They will say it's our way and it's a different way. Okay. So the, the Chinese way of doing business, which is a guanxi way of doing business. Relationship guanxi. And, and it's this kind of barter way of you help me, I help you, is much more in sync with how the rest of the world and particularly the developing world does business. The contractual way of doing business that the Europeans and the Americans do is quite foreign mm. to most of the world. Mm. So if you go to India, you go to Vietnam, you go to Congo, you go to Algeria, it's relationships yeah. because you don't have a legal system that can back up your contract. Therefore, their process works more effectively in Africa than it does with the, the US or Europe. There we go. And so the Chinese come in and they're, they're traders at heart. Right. And so at the end of the day, they're saying, we're going to, I'll work with you, you work with me. And I found that the Chinese were able to kind of cut through a, a country like the Congo. Transparency International puts it like number 174 out of 175 for corruption. Yeah. And yet the Chinese are finding ways to kind of maneuver. Now, I don't want to, I, I'm always very careful here. I don't want people to think I'm an apologist for the Chinese. I don't want people to think that I'm in any way advocating for the Chinese. I'm not. I don't have a horse in the race. All I'm trying to point out here is that the way that the Chinese are doing things oftentimes is far more compatible with a lot of the ways that other people around the world do business outside of the kind of Anglo, Anglo-American yeah. uh, kind well, of universe. Well, let's come back to, to how they're doing it, but let's just, just to put this in perspective of the, the level of investment in Africa is off the charts. I mean, looking at 2016, and these are numbers from Ernst & Young that you shared with me, um, you, you can see that, that China, in fact, was uh, uh, created, uh, let me see, 106.3% increase in 2016 over 2015 
2015, $36.1 billion investment in foreign direct investment um, outpaced every other country, you know, and, and represented 38.4% of total investment, foreign direct investment in, in 2016. Um, that is unbelievably huge numbers. The numbers, and particularly for Africa, which is still, you know, although they are the fastest growing economies in the world today, there's a, you know, if you look at the top 10, four or five are in Africa. They're coming from a very small base. Mm. These are tiny economies. I always like to remind Africans that if Africa disappeared from China's trade balance tomorrow, China wouldn't even notice. Yeah. It's less than 5%. Right. So the scale of investment and the scale of trade, uh, right now we're, we're kind of on track for about 200 billion uh, annual trade, which is still sizable, but Latin America does more trade than Africa does with China. Right. Right. So, so we're talking small numbers, but if you look at the trend lines, which is what you're talking about, it's critical. And Africa's part and parcel of a broader political and financial agenda that, uh, that that she is now rolling out. And can you tell us a little bit about that? So the Chinese, this is what Westerners and outsiders misread about the Chinese in Africa. So they will look at the money. And that's in part because we in the West have defined our relationship with Africa for centuries around resources and money. Uh, we've already established that the money is rather insignificant for the Chinese when you compare to what they're doing with the U.S., with Europe, the Persian Gulf, uh, you know, in Southeast Asia, it's much bigger. Mm. So this is not, you cannot define the Chinese engagement in Africa on pure natural resources or on money. But you can look at what the power of what $1 investment can do in Africa versus other countries. I mean, the impact that it can have could significantly be much greater. But you're putting some altruism into that. And the Chinese, I think, are, 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 are not, they, yeah. they're not looking at altruism. Don't mean to. Just saying in, in terms of just because there's such a deficit of, of, of investment in Africa, when the Chinese show up, they show up big. In other words, it, it appears from the infrastructure projects where there's nothing, suddenly there's, there's a bridge. You know, where, where there's no telecommunications service, you know, all of a sudden there is. These are big, impactful moments. Not that they're doing it altruistically, but they're visible. They are visible. And, and, and so the Chinese investment is visible. Um, the Chinese presence is visible. But let's talk about kind of why are the Chinese in Africa? This is Inside Asia, and my guest this episode is Eric Olander, who hosts the China in Africa podcast with South African journalist and academic Kobus von Staden. Let's get back to our conversation. Eric and I have just landed on what is the central question of this episode. Why are the Chinese so keen on building a presence in Africa? Is it economic-led, or is there something else going on? The Chinese now have more UN peacekeepers in Africa than any other permanent member of the UN Security Council. Uh, there's something around eight or 9,000 troops. Uh, for the first time in Chinese history, they've done foreign combat-ready deployments. Mm -hmm. They've now established their first overseas military base in Djibouti. Mm -hmm. uh, they are first overseas military base anywhere. Anywhere in the world. And they broke one of their cardinal doctrines established by Zhou Enlai that said, we will not have bases overseas. Mm -hmm. So Africa, in many ways, is, is the first of what we now expect to see other bases. Mm. What they are doing in Africa... The beachhead. It, it is in some ways a beachhead, but they're doing it in ways that are... They're learning lessons, and they're able to do things in Africa that they could never do in any other part of the world. You, can you imagine setting up a base somewhere in Asia? Impossible. I mean, people's heads would explode. Right. Can you imagine setting up a base in South America? I mean, the, the Pentagon and Donald Trump would just lose their mind. Certainly in Europe, you know, in Central 
Central Europe or in the Caucasus, the Russians don't want the Chinese there. So here we have a space where the Chinese can learn on the ground combat. They can learn supplies, uh, supply or you know supplying military forces. So, for example, for the past ten years, uh, the Chinese have been very active in making a very positive contribution to anti-piracy operations off the coast of Somalia. But, but, but Eric, I mean, this is also, but it's almost like a military base in Africa by default because it just wouldn't work out anywhere else. And we are talking about a relatively weak economies of the African continent um, needing development and needing funding and investment. And therefore, there is a little bit of blood money going on here, is there not? That blood money is a subjective word. I, I understand. And, I, you know, so again, different people will argue this differently. Yeah. Is the Japanese base in Djibouti blood money? Is the French base in Djibouti blood money? Is the American base in Djibouti blood money? You're saying it's just pure economics. We have something no, for you. No, 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 no. no. I think that uh, I think uh, you know countries like Djibouti like to keep uh, the Americans, the French, and the Japanese on their toes. Okay. I think there's a good competitive spirit there. That you're not the only game in town. African leaders love the fact that they've got options now. They yeah. didn't have that option before. They were forced to align themselves with what the IMF, the World Bank, the White House, what Brussels said. And now all of a sudden they can say, you know what, I've got two offers, yeah. not just one. They like that, that option to do that. They like the fact that the Chinese are genuinely engaged. Uh, it's been six months since President Trump has been in office. Not a single policy speech on Africa. He's militarizing aid. German Chancellor Angela Merkel talked about, you know, trying to push through, you know, Parliament the ability to militarize some of her aid. So while the West is militarizing Africa, and, and the Chinese are too, by the way. Yeah. The Chinese are selling weapons, and so let's, they're not immune from this either. But the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, known as FOCAC, uh, is an event that happens every five years. Xi Jinping brought out the checkbook last time in 2015 for $60 billion of financing. Africa needs a trillion dollars of infrastructure. No one else is bringing that money for right. infrastructure. Right. So what you're saying is that China's not doing anything that anybody else isn't doing. In fact, they're going one step further by actually delivering on what they say they're going to do. Uh, they are doing what I would say far more. More African students go to China than any other country in the world. They're sponsoring, uh, they're building five transportation universities in Africa to train people how to operate the trains, the airplanes, the ports that they're building. They are, they're bringing agricultural specialists. I mean, you think, and, and this is something that's interesting because China, uh, you know, up until about a year ago, China had more poor people than Africa. And this is something always to remember that China is rich, the Chinese are not. I mean, you know, this East Coast where we where we are today here in Shanghai uh, is is on par with with Europe now in terms of standard of living. I mean, you know, Starbucks costs six bucks a cup, but you go, uh, you know, an hour and a half, two hours from here, and you're you're back in, you know, and and, and I think the Chinese bring that expertise to places like Africa and South Asia, where they are able to work in these conditions and to bring solutions for these conditions. Huawei is developing phones that are dust resistant, that are water resistant, that have longer power charging batteries, that have solar connections to them. 
designed for these kinds of markets where people don't have access to the infrastructure. You just raised an interesting point. I mean, because there is still a large swath of China which is poor or or, 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 or still struggling, still coming up. And is there brewing or might there be brewing resentment for all of this investment that's going into other developing markets around the world? Like some of these second, third tier cities, why are they saying, why aren't we getting those those new power plants or those bridges or the new road systems? Why are you taking that? I mean, this is kind of like China first, right? Is there going to be a Trump moment? You know, here in, in where where you know somebody is going to say we got to swing back the other way. We've gone too far into foreign direct investment. The politics here in, on on aid um, are starting to mirror the politics in other countries, particularly in Europe and the United States, um, where uh, this came up oh, about two years ago when there was a uh, a bus crash um, of school children in in central China, and and this is a really cr- this is one of those issues that really just pisses off people so much mm. that the and we saw it also with the Sichuan earthquake when the the houses collapsed right, right. and it's one of these issues that touches off on social media so this bus crashes with school children because the bus was deficient right it was was faulty and, and the case with the building the building was actually it wasn't built to code it wasn't built to code and there was corruption inside of the of the, of the inspections at the, almost at the same time as the bus crashed, there was a story about how China was donating brand new school buses to Romania. Oh, yeah. and, and that started to awaken people of, why are we giving Romanian school children great buses when we don't have them? Right. Um, and this is, a, this is a delicate issue for the government in terms of how do they balance the need to use their enormous reserves to, to grow their wealth and to engage the rest of the world. But at the same time, they've got massive deficits here in infrastructure and social issues. So, so they do have to walk a fine line. Uh, they do have to explain the benefits uh, of doing this to their own people. They talk about it in terms of win-win development. They talk about it in terms of China's expanding influence around the world. Um, but for the most part, um, the Chinese do do not talk too much about what they do in, in you know building the schools, the, the dams, the hospitals, because it is potentially sensitive here for that. That is a sensitive issue. So, the, so being quiet is the best strategy. And they shape the narrative in, in ways. And it's a little bit like how we shape our own narrative. I mean, Americans are guilty of this as well. We will talk about how much aid we give to Africa, but we don't really explain that that aid requires them to buy very expensive American products. Mm. So we all lie to ourselves. And that's really the role that I play on the show, is to poke holes in all the embedded narratives and to challenge the hypocrisies of all the different players. Mm -hmm. And I try to be as critical of the Chinese as I am of the Americans, as I am of the Europeans, and equally critical of Africans themselves who fit so comfortably into the role of victim Mm -hmm. and say, other people are always doing this to us. Mm -hmm. And one of the messages that we have on the show is no, other people are not doing this to you. You have corruption in your society. You lack governance in your society. You have to take the energy that you've been putting towards foreigners and put it towards your own governments to demand more accountability. So you're trying to hold them both accountable. All to, accountable. Yeah. Okay. There's, there's a lot of parties here. Yeah. Um, we are entirely nonprofit, entirely mm-hmm. nonpartisan. This mm-hmm. is a labor of love, just like your podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've been surprised over the almost eight years that we've done this 
that we haven't sparked more kind of animosity and the trolls haven't found us on the internet. <laughs> I mean, because we're just wait. Well, you know, now I might have unleashed the demon here. But, you know, we're, we're, we're engaging, you know, when you comment on Chinese politics from the outside, uh, the Chinese can be hypersensitive. When you comment on African politics from the outside, particularly as two white guys, people can be hypersensitive. When you criticize the United States, there is no one who's more sensitive, and especially in this day and age right now, as Americans are. And so, but we have threaded the needle on that, and in part because we try to be fair, and we try to be impartial, and we try to be equal in our in our coverage. But it's it's this the Africa story. It comes at a prescient time, I and mean, this this is one of the most interesting moments I've seen in watching China for as you know as many years as you have, where there is this this move outside. I mean, you mentioned the military bases, you mentioned the you know the one belt one road policy, you, the or the way that they're building infrastructure around the world, the way that they're investing in software companies in Silicon Valley. China is on the move. And Africa is the next frontier in the eyes of many people, maybe not in dollar terms, but in terms of what it represents. How, how, would, you, how would you characterize that? This is one of the most fascinating geopolitical stories of the 21st century that is largely going unnoticed. Oh, that's great. I mean, and it is it is absolutely fascinating yeah. because Africa represents more than money. It represents 54 votes at the United Nations. Africa represents 54 votes at the World Court. It represents a voice at the IMF, at the World Bank. And who are you going to align yourself with? If you are a small African country and you have your allegiances and your money and your investments and your trading relations tied up with the Chinese or tied up with the Americans and tied up with the British. But you raise a really interesting point, but China knows this. This is a soft power. This is what they, they, they know what they're doing, right? They've demonstrated over all these years. You said at the beginning of this, this conversation, never underestimate. You've, you've underestimated them. We've all underestimated the Chinese. They're not going in just because they can build great bridges. They're going in because they actually know exactly what they're doing here. To a point, it's very easy to overestimate the Chinese. It's very easy to assign more kind of organization and thought to what they're doing than actually exists. This is a far more chaotic process than most people really believe. The state-owned enterprises that are operating in Africa are operating more like private entities, competing for contracts, you know, bottoming out prices, really, you know, and this is the Chinese, the Chinese work on a different time set of time frame. Time means something different to the Chinese than it does to Americans. We think in terms of quarters. Mm. We think in terms of, you know, three months, six months, nine months. If I don't yeah. see a return, I'm out of yeah. there. They think in terms of centuries. Centuries or at least in terms of, you know, five and ten years. Yeah. So they're willing to, what they say, eat bitter yeah. for, for years before they will see a return. And that's a different set. And so understanding that they're playing by a different set of rules and understanding that their sense of time is different than ours. And that really is important to understanding. And by the way, African sense of time and Congolese sense of time and, and Angolan sense of time is also different than ours. And I think that's really understand. that's really understates why we as Americans in particular, but Westerners in general, are struggling in, part, in these parts of the world, not just in Africa, but also in much of the, the global south. Eric, how would you describe the China-Africa relationship today? It is the blind man and the elephant, as the famous professor Deborah Braudigam at Johns Hopkins University likes to say. I can sit here for the next hour and tell you 
all the reasons why China is terrible for Africa, the horrible things that they're doing, the mechanization of clear-cutting forests, the destruction of African wildlife, the fueling of corruption that the Chinese preference for dealing with elites and not civil society is not good, the militarization, the selling of drones and weapons. We can go on for an hour and I can tell you everything that's bad and I'm right on every single point. Mm. I can also, however, however mm. I can sit here for an hour and tell you all the wonderful things that China is doing, building roads where there were none, demining parts of Angola to let banana farmers sell into the capital of Luanda, whereas they had to use to import bananas from Brazil, mm. to bring in new hospitals, to bring in telecommunications, to bring in jobs and trade and, and investment that nobody else would be doing. Mm. This is, is remarkable. So we say the blind man and the elephant because that's the parable which says that the, ele the, the blind man goes around and says, the elephant is a small, thin animal. Yeah. And then he, he, when he's reaching for the tail, and then he goes to the hind legs and he says, it's a big, large animal. You can see in the China-Africa relationship anything you want to see. And that's one of the reasons why the conflicting narratives exist to this day. Mm -hmm. So some people will focus purely on the negatives of imported labor. They'll talk about you know, low-cost products that are coming in, undermining local, uh, local producers. Uh, others will talk about the fact that now there are $60 Android, Huawei, ZTE, and Lenovo phones there that people are able to communicate. We're seeing the emergence now of WeChat and Alipay coming onto the market. Jack Ma himself, the CEO of Alibaba was just in Kenya and saying, guess what? I'm coming. Right. This is the next battleground for the Chinese tech giants to come into. Uh -huh. And that's exciting because people have a choice for products and services that the West is simply not providing them. Yeah. And so both are and both are true and both are at play. So in many ways, it's a yin yang. Right. You have a dark and you have a light. People are starting to look at this and with different eyes now because Africa is that that uh, that landing space. It, it, it is unique in so many different ways. And it does basically demonstrate that the Chinese have ambition that go beyond their own borders? I would say that it's peaking for some people, but not for others. Mm. The politics of the United States today are so introverted that they're not seeing anything that's happening outside of the Which of is the part US. of the problem, right? Because as, as we're sleeping, you know, China's creeping. Depends on what side of the problem you're on. Mm. If you're sitting in Beijing and you're a policy planner, and this is not necessarily the worst thing in the world mm. that the United States is distracted right now. If uh, you know that Europe is distracted right now with their own internal politics, um, you know, so big things, the tectonic plates of geopolitics are shifting right in front of us. And I'm excited to be here in China because we have a front row seat to it. I mean, uh, in Africa, things are happening now that cannot be undone. The, the, the Chinese base is there. The Chinese investment is there. The Chinese uh, you know, presence in places like Nigeria and Tanzania and Uganda is there. When I go, and, and this is what makes me sad as an American, when I travel, I don't see young Americans anymore overseas. Mm -hmm. One of the things you'll see in places like Vietnam, and you'll see it in India, and you'll see it in all these countries, I will see legions of young Chinese engineers, professional class engineers. These, these young people are learning languages, they're getting international experience, they're learning how to work in global environments, and eventually they're gonna go home, maybe. And they're going to inform the politics of this country. In 20 years, we're going to see the fruits and the dividends of what's happening today. So we're gonna see it on two sides. If you go to Beijing and here in Shanghai, there are thousands of African students who are learning Mandarin, they're building relationships, they're going to go home. 
You know our college relationships. They're powerful. They last with us our whole lives. That's trend number one. Trend number two is tens of thousands of young Chinese are overseas right now in Bolivia, in Ecuador, in Tanzania, building these projects, working on these state-owned enterprises. They're getting incredible experience. And I talk to all of my friends and all the people I know in the United States, and I read that you know, universities across the United States are shutting their Chinese programs. And we're going the opposite direction. And that makes me sad because I think Americans and Europeans need to be out there. And if we leave this space for others, that's not good for the rest of the world, and it's certainly not good for our country. Eric, uh, keep up the good work. Thank you for your contribution. Fantastically interesting subject, and I look forward to listening on and into your podcast week on week. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was my interview with Eric Olander, host, producer, mastermind behind the China and Africa podcast. As mentioned at the beginning of the show, you can download any of the hundred episodes produced by Eric and Cobus either on iTunes or via their website at www.chinaafricaproject.com. At the end of each episode, I like to offer a little summing up. We call it a bunkus, a tasty, not too salty takeaway meal popular here in Bali. My conversation with Eric left me with a lot to think about. I chewed on this one a while and some of it, well, was a bit tough, maybe even hard to digest. With so much controversy and bad press swirling around China's presence in Africa, I struggled to get past the hullabaloo in order to listen carefully to Eric's assessment of the situation. What is China doing in Africa? It's certainly not altruism. Is it to establish a beachhead for access to natural resources and commodities essential to feeding the China economic engine? Is it a new frontier for China investment, technology, and services? Does China see Africa as the last among market greenfield opportunities where telecom networks, roads, ports, power plants, and payment systems are all in the earliest stages of development and therefore receptive to expertise and investment support? Free enterprise, right? Nothing wrong with that. Some observers, however, question China's means of doing business in Africa, specifically the way Chinese companies extract government concessions or do behind-closed-door deals with the African elite. It can feel shady, and I'm sure it oftentimes is. The lingering fear is that China won't so much enrich Africa as it will exploit it. Vigilance is everything. Eric tries to explain the China-Africa relationship by invoking the idea of guanxi, the Chinese word for connections or relationships. In the West, we are businesses built on contracts and deliverables, timelines and legalities. In China, as in Africa, we see something a little different a world that runs on connections, relationships, mutual self-interest, as well as something hard to define, even unspoken. Guanxi is the web of interrelationships. When it goes well, there's mutual benefit. When it goes wrong, it smacks of entanglement. Western businessmen and governments struggle with this. In fact, there's a healthy dose of stereotyping that goes on around it. Isn't it so that whenever something isn't understood, it's relegated to stereotype? Well, this may be the case when the West looks at the unique and budding relationship that is China in Africa. We don't understand it, so we are quick to think the worst of it. Don't get me wrong. Exploitation is exploitation, and diligence is tantamount if the people of Africa are to get what they deserve, a piece, that is, of the economic dream. Better infrastructure, better roads, better education, and better opportunity. It's what any nation wants for its people. The question is, can China deliver, taking its gains as it might, but leaving in its wake a better way of life for the people of Africa? We can only hope. 
I'm Steve Stein, and thanks for listening. Until next time, this is my invite for you to come in from the outside on Inside Asia. Thank you.